podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carol Matchett. How are you, sir? I have a brand new, fresh, steaming hot cup of tea in front of me. How do you think I am? Oh, well, that's, that for you is a 10 out of 10 start today. Well, it's not start today because it is the afternoon, but it's close enough to start of my day. Um, right, we're here today to cover the EFL Cup and a whole bunch of other stuff. So do you want to leave the Bournemouth discussion to the end or do you want to jump right into it now? Uh, Bournemouth at the end, come on then. Right, right, right. So to start with then, um, a couple of weeks ago, Carl and Guy did their Argentinian, uh, all-time Argentinian Premier League team. So it is my turn. So I'm going to quickly go through this. Um, Now, with the greatest of respect... Esteban Cambiasso came to the Premier League at the end of his career. Magnificent player, but he doesn't get in. Juan Sebastian Verón is one of my favourite players of all time. He was better at Manchester United than people realise, but he was a disaster at Chelsea. Uh, he doesn't get in. Hernan Crespo was one of my favourite strikers from the 90s and 2000s, but he didn't do well in England, so he doesn't get in. Angel Di Maria is one of the best wingers I've ever seen, but he didn't do well in the Premier League, so he doesn't get in. And two, I just always had a fondness for. Claudio Jacob, who I thought was really good for West Brom, uh, but doesn't quite make the grade here. And Mauro Zarati, who I just liked watching play, even though he had no idea that there were actual teammates on the pitch that he was allowed pass to. He thought it was a massive game of 1v1 among 22 players, where when you got the ball, you had to score or you were out. So he doesn't quite make the grade. So what I've gone would have gone with Emmy Martinez in goal. I, I actually don't think it's even close. I think he's comfortably the best Argentinian goalkeeper of the last 30 years since Goicochea. There might be some case for that lunatic who retired to go off and become a Christian ministry and a minister and then came back. Um but I'm going to go with Emmy Martinez. Uh, right back, Pablo Zabaleta, potentially pre-Trent, the most reliable right back in Premier League history. Seven out of ten at a minimum every single game. Not spectacular, but very, very solid. And left back, I've gone for a player who, if Alex Ferguson wasn't a bad bell end, would have played for Liverpool. And that is Gabriela Heinze. Uh, with a nod of the cap to Emiliano Insua, who I enjoyed, but he only had one good season for Liverpool. So Heinze had multiple good, se- like very good seasons for United. So we'll go Heinze. 
<laughs> in the middle, uh, it's the World Cup winning partnership. It's Chris, uh, Christian Romero and Otamendi. Otamendi wasn't great for City, but he did have some really good runs of form. So we'll go with him. And Romero, for me, is a top five centre-back in the league now. So we're going to go with him. Uh, in midfield, I've gone with Javier Mascherano as my six because he's one of the best defensive midfielders of all time and certainly the best Argentinian defensive midfielder to play in the Premier League. Uh, and as the two eights, I've gone with Alexis McAllister, World Cup winner, and Enzo Fernandez, World Cup winner. I just think they're both brilliant. And I, I don't know that we've had, other than Mask, better Premier League Argentinian midfielders than those two. Uh, my front three picked itself. Carlos Tevez, good for West Ham, brilliant for United. He was brilliant for City. I, I always wanted us to get him and we never did. So, yeah, he's in. Sergio Aguero is a top five striker to play in the Premier League. He was incredible. And I've gone with Maxi Rodriguez as my third forward because, well, he's Maxi Rodriguez. What more do you want? Uh, so that is my team. I have been told that Carl and Guy agreed on somebody and that if I didn't have him in, I was going to be judged. So now I throw it to you, Carl Matches. Have I picked the player that you and Guy had agreed on? Well, I mean, Guy didn't confide in me this part of the plan, but I assume it was Maxi Rodriguez. Guy, feel free to step in and berate me hideously if that's not the case. No, it was Marcus Rojo. <laughs> Well, neither if anyone out there knows how to produce podcasts, we're now <laughs> not a new podcast producer because this fella's clearly got to go into some sort of drug rehab or something because he's been sniffing too much glue. Of course, it was Maxi Rodriguez. It, we all it remember had to be Maxi. It had to be Maxi. Um, I think with I think your midfield, uh, sorry, your defense and your forward line was exactly the same as guys actually. Oh, okay. What was? I see. I, I haven't listened to that pod yet. So, what was your midfield guy? Uh, Mascarano and Veron. I had McAllister in event in, initially, but yeah. I don't know. You bigged up. You big up Veron. Uh, I love Veron. Was incredible. Veron was amazing. He was actually really good for United to begin with, but it just didn't work long term because because Scholes, when Scholes was playing off the striker in front of Veron and Keane, that was working. But Scholes wanted to play deeper and Ferguson wanted a second forward in the team. And Veron and Scholes didn't work. I think Keane then got fucked off a bit with Veron over Veron's domination of the ball. So that stopped working as well in the second season. But yeah, what was your team, Carl? Um, I th- I can't honestly remember completely, but I think at centre-back, my only change for yours was uh, I wanted less madness of Otamendi and, and unreliability. So I actually went with Fazio, I think. Um, oh, that's fair. A, yeah, completely steady centre-back alongside Romero. Um, and I think I went with Julian Alvarez over Tevez in the end up from. Oh, dear. Oh, no. Yeah. No, 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 no. I'm not accepting that. Julian Alvarez's selection, uh, as high as he was in the Ballon d'Or, is one of the most farcical things I've ever seen. Uh, do you want to move on to that now? and discuss the Ballon d'Or, which took place last night as Lionel Messi was crowned the best player in the world for the eighth time. 
Um, guy had Varane and Di Maria in. I yeah, I mean they're, they're both incredible players. Um, right, Carl Lionel Messi Ballon d'Or winner. Immediate thoughts. Uh, an inevitability from ten months ago. Uh, as soon as he lifted that trophy in Qatar, I think that that was done. That was always going to be the case. Um, I must admit, last night while the awards were going on, it kind of shocked me that the World Cup final was ten months ago. That eleven months, ten months ago. Yeah, it feels like it should be not quite as long ago as that, but it definitely is. Um, but yeah, I don't think it was any kind of a surprise whatsoever. Uh, as soon as it was. Messi had finally got that World Cup that he wanted. That was always going to be his next crown as well. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the case for Haaland was obviously just the raw numbers, the goals, because and he doesn't th- offer a whole lot else. But And trophies, because trophies counts for many times people have won it, even if they're... Agreed, agreed. So City winning the treble last year was a big part of that. But I would point out that they did win the league title the two previous seasons... Mm. to that and he wasn't very good in the latter rounds of the Champions League and in the final he put in one of the worst performances I've ever seen from a so-called superstar in a major final so if you look at the raw numbers for club and country over the course of the year goals and assists Messi only had two less than Haaland Mm. And I would imagine played less minutes over the course of the year as well. So Messi has a match there. Messi won a league title and a World Cup. And I just think performance counts. And Messi is consistently an 8 out of 10. Haaland is very frequently a 4 out of 10. Like, there's rarely a game where Messi will play and you think, He's actually hurting his team here. But with Haaland, that happens all the time. The difference between them is that Haaland can play dreadfully for 88 minutes and end up with a hat-trick. Like on Sunday, for example, against Manchester United, Haaland was poor, but he scored two and he got an assist. And he walks away man of the match. Messi because of how he plays and because he's involved in so much more of the build-up play, he's not going to have that type of performance. He's not going to be crap for 88 minutes and then come away with a short-range header, a penalty, and an assist where you haven't actually done anything. You've just been in the right place as the ball bounces to you and you've rolled it five yards sideways. Messi doesn't get those type of goals and assists. So for me, if we're looking at performance, I mean, I wouldn't have even had Haaland in the top five on performance, but goals and obviously the team trophies are a massive factor, which is why Cristiano Ronaldo has five of these things, despite never at any point being the best player in the world. Yep, agreed. And, you know, goals are, as we know, very, very difficult to do consistently and and to that volume. So... I don't have all the problem in the world with people, you know, being voted as the best if they do it to a ridiculous extent. But agreed, I wouldn't have had him second. I mean, like, if you take away the goals, no, no, not take away the goals. If you count goals as equal as performances in other areas of the pitch, mm-hmm. I would, for example, say Rodri was the yes. better player in Man City last season and won the same amount of trophies, obviously. Exactly. And 
and was better for his national team than Haaland was. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Rodri for me, I think, top five, absolutely warranted. Um, so Mbappe was three. I mean, he also obviously won trophies with PSG, got to the World Cup final, turned in uh, an exceptional performance in that World Cup final. Was great. Maybe as, as good in that final as her Haaland was bad in the Champions League final. Yes, exactly. I, I, I personally, I think that um, there were there were quite a few sliding doors moments in the World Cup final, obviously. But I think if you take, let's say, uh, Randall Colomwani's one-on-one with Martinez, which is saved, if it goes in and France want to win, I think Mbappe wins this Ballon d'Or. I, I agree. I just, think, I just think it was that game, those two, whoever got it was going to get it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, so uh, De Bruyne is four. I don't, I don't have a major issue with that at all. Uh, I think he had a tremendous season for City. Uh, Rodri, five. Vinicius Jr., six. Again, no issue there. He was he was the best player in, in La Liga last season, in my view. Now, he didn't win any trophies last season. So you could maybe hit him on that. But on performance, he was incredible. I do take major issue with Julian Alvarez. Like, he had a good World Cup. But he was only a squad player for City last season. How are you getting seventh in the Ballon d'Or if you're not first choice for your club in the season in which this Ballon d'Or is is voted on? Uh, Victor Osterman, eight. He was brilliant. And I have no problem with him being in the top 10. But he wasn't Napoli's best player last season. Bernardo Silva, nine. Because, you know, let's push as many City players in as we can. And Luka Modric, 10, and I I take issue with this one as well. He had a good World Cup. I didn't think he had a particularly strong season last year for Real. I thought we saw marked decline in his performances. He's still able to put forward great performances, but he can no longer do it as consistently as he once did. Um, so that's the top 10. And there are, there's two names in there that I would actually, to be fair, there's three names in there that I would remove Julian Alvarez, Bernardo Silva, and Luka Modric. Is, what, what did you make of the top 10? Would, who would you take out if you were rearranging it? Uh, definitely Alvarez and Modric. Silva, I could go either way, to be honest, because some of the players who were outside the top 10, um, you know, they were they were fine. A lot of them, they were okay. Some of them, they were very good. Some of them, but I don't think there were any absolute certs. Had to be way way up there. To be honest, I mean, you can argue, like you say, Osimian being higher than either Kim or um, Kvitcha within one team. But broadly speaking, I wouldn't say that I had massive massive issues as I would have done many more times in the past, where you got lists with the same faces and the same names over and over, regardless of anything that they've done. I think here, Luka Modric is the only holdover, I would say, of that kind of voting era. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Um, So one of the names I would be promoting into my top 10 is Kvitsa. Uh Another is Mohamed Salah, who finished 11th. And I don't really understand how he's 11th because he had a really good season in a really poor team where he was used 
really poorly for large chunks of the season. And yet he still managed to put up outstanding numbers. He he almost single-handedly, well, not single-handedly because someone else will get to. They held that team together last year as everything else crumbled apart. The defence was at times poor, like very poor. The midfield was pathetic. We saw Darwin struggle to settle in. We had injury issues for Jota and Diaz. The only constants in the team were Mo and Ali, who performed at anything resembling a respectable level. I thought, personally, he had a better season than Alvarez, Silva or Modric. Um, And I don't really get how he's 11. Are you that person who has everything? The coolest merch and those must-have fan threads? Well... Over at our Anfield Index shop, we've gone that extra mile when it comes to pimping up your Liverpool collection. From our popular range of bespoke design t-shirts, sweaters, hoodies and hats, to our signature edition mugs, prints and coasters, all provided with fast worldwide shipping. We have something for every red. We also stock official LFC merchandise and are licensed with the Premier League and UEFA to sell official iron-on shirt badges and sleeve patches. As a listener to this podcast, you can get 10% off everything with coupon code AIPRO10. Just head over to anfieldindex.shop or find us on Etsy by searching for Anfield Index. No, I think Salah is the very definite one who should have been in there. Uh, I think a strong case can be made for Harry Kane to be... He would be my third. He would be my third one to move up, yeah. Yeah, certainly above the forwards that we've just mentioned there. Um and to be honest, I think even Ilkay Gundogan was probably above yeah. Bernardo Silva on a purely Man City level, to be honest. So yeah, you can yeah. definitely reshuffle some of them, but yeah, it's the Ballon d'Or, isn't it? It is. And it like at the end of the day, it is a popularity contest. And, you know, we see these things get relitigated all the time. And I saw a tweet last night about how the great robberies of the Ballon d'Or era were... Haaland this season. It, there's no robbery here. Like he's actually, he's actually fortunate to finish second. Um, another one that people will frequently point to is Pavel Nedved over Thierry Henry. Again, that's not a robbery. Henry was incredible that season, but so was Nedved. But Nedved led his team to a Champions League final, which they likely would have won had he not been suspended for that final. And Arsenal flamed out in Europe again. So I, I don't think that's a robbery at all. And then the third one people point to is Wes Schneider and Messi. But like, I'm sorry, there's Schneider was incredible. He was absolutely incredible that year. But Lionel Messi was out of this world at that point in that Guardiola City team. So I don't really see how how that would work. I don't see how you could make a case that was a robbery. I would point to the 13-14 season Ballon d'Or, which Cristiano Ronaldo won, despite not being Real Madrid's best player, whereas Luis Suarez was the best player for me in Europe that season. In the 15-16 season, which again, Cristiano Ronaldo won, and again, I would argue he wasn't Real's best player that year. I think Suarez was the best player on the planet that year. Suarez has been blackballed from these these awards because 
of obviously the off the the you know the behavior, the biting, whatever else. Um, I think they're more robberies than than this or than those other two. But look, they are a popularity contest, and that's that's all they'll ever be. Um, a guy has pointed out something very interesting. Emiliano Martinez was voted the uh, Leviat the the Ashen Trophy winner for the best goalkeeper of the year, but two spots above him in the Ballon d'Or, we have Yassine Bono, uh, then of Sevilla and Morocco. Now Sevilla obviously won the Europa League. Morocco had a great run in the World Cup, but Martinez won the World Cup and also won the the Ashen Award. I don't understand how Bono can finish above him. How does I don't know I don't know how that works. I mean the stupidity doesn't stop there because the entire Yashin Award included Thibaut Courtois, Marc Andre Terstegen and Ederson. Um none of them were in the top thirty actually in the nominees for the Ballon d'Or. But uh Andrea Nana was and he was not part of the Yashin nominees. So who the hell knows what's going on there? Yeah, Andre Onana twenty third. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and guess he won't be 23rd when we get to next year's award. Um, there might not be anybody on... Actually, there is. I, I can say this with absolute confidence. There is nobody on this list of 30 names. And just to go through them, it's Salah 11, Lewandowski 12, Bono 13, Gundogan 14, Martinez 15, Benzema 16, Kvitsa 17, Bellingham 18, Kane 19, which is very low, Latura Martinez, 20. Griezmann, 21. He deserved to be higher. Uh, Kim, 22. Onana, 23. Saka, 24. Gradiol, 25. That's high. That's high based on his season last year. Musiala, 26. Barella, 27. Kolomuani and Odegaard equal in 28. And then Ruben Diaz in 20, uh, in 30th. Uh, there is nobody on that list from 1 to 30 having anywhere near as bad a season as Andre Onana is this year. Yes. Um, <laughs> fine. That's that's fair. Um, I mean, I just think that there are a large number, and we've already spoken about three really high-profile ones on this podcast and unrelated matters, a large number of Manchester United signings, big name signings, big money signings, big profile signings, who then go on to not do well at all. There is inherently something within that team, within that club for quite a long time now, which stops people performing at their best, which stops people being adequately used properly to reach their best, which, you know, there's a lot to fight against to be very good at Manchester United, which on the one hand is you know, quite damning of the, the setup of the club. On the other hand, maybe makes it even more worth, uh, you know, respect and admiration of the players who do really stand out there and, and consistently be good for them. So we might as well just quick, quickly do an aside on this. Eric Ten Hag said that the reason he doesn't play his Ajax style of football at United is he doesn't have the players to play his Ajax style of football. So why on earth have you then spent the better part of 200 million on three players who were part of that Ajax team and who do not suit playing a direct style of football in Anthony, who's been awful, Onana, who has been awful. Now, that was an, an enormous overpay to begin with. 
that's not a 50 million goalkeeper never has been and then Lissandra Martinez who's 5 foot 9 or 5 foot 8 or whatever minuscule height he is for a centre back if you're not going to play possession football why have you spent all that money on him like he spent over 400 million he's changed large parts of the team there's not one signing you could look at that he's made and say he's been a success not one and I think it's 18 players now they've signed or 16 players something like that and not one of them you could point to and say he's been a success now for some of them it's too early and obviously Casemiro had a very good season last year but that seemed like it it took every last drop of magic and greatness that was left in him. And he's a shell of himself this season. We've had... Do you remember when we had Phil Coutinho and we had Mamadou Sacco, who was our best centre-back at the time, and we went into the summer of 2014 with Coutinho, so you didn't need a 10 with Sacco, so you didn't need a left-side centre-back, and we spunked £45 million on Dejan Lovren, a left-side centre-back, and Adam Lallana, a 10. Like, that's the vibes I get from the Mason Mount signing. Mason Mount's two best positions are number 10 or left wing. Manchester United's two best players are Bruno Fernandes, who plays as a 10 for them, and Marcus Rashford, who plays left wing, it just didn't make any sense to me. It also, you know, it's notable that they had Jaden Sancho, who they'd spent seventy-five million on, who was going to have to play right wing because Bruno was the ten, Rashford was left wing, and this manager went and he spent another eighty odd million on Anthony to play the same position as Sancho. Now, we can go over all the other stuff that's going on with them off the field and whatever, but that's not the point here. The point is, you've already got a top talent in these positions and you're spending large portions of your budget, hundred and the better part of $150 million between Mount and Anthony, on two players for positions that you should already be strong in with players who can suit the style of football you want to play while ignoring the positions that you aren't strong in. I, I, I don't understand anything about that football club. But the biggest thing I don't understand is a lot of this blind faith in Ten Hag. We have no evidence that Eric Ten Hag is a good manager, Carl. Yes, he did well at Ajax. Frank de Boer did better at Ajax than him. And look what happened to Frank de Boer everywhere else. Yeah, I mean, I think Ten Hag has been atrocious at United, to be perfectly honest. I think there are loads and loads of um, decisions that I would say he needed to do a lot better with, and I say that tactically and with regards to personnel so far as well. Again, as usual, caveats of we don't know everything that's gone on and blah, 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 but we can see how he is publicly handling things, and I just personally I don't really agree with quite a lot of it. And even if he doesn't have all the players, all the players to do the exact same thing he wants, I tell you what, nor do about 17 other managers in the Premier League. Yeah. But not all of them play that badly. Not all of them have to just completely abandon every single pillar of your wish list of how to play and what areas to play in and how to make build-up happen and all the rest of it and still manage to get results. 
And even if they're not always getting results, still manage to not get absolutely embarrassed on a routine basis. And it seems that United are either constantly turning corners by beating teams 2-1 who are not very good, or getting thrashed, like mm. in, in even if not in the scoreline, in open play, in a general 90-minute long scenario, they are being outplayed routinely by, yeah, sure, Man City, but by Copenhagen. By- by, by mediocre teams. By that very, very run-of-the-mill Premier League stuff. Um, I, I think it's a terrible, terrible setup there at the minute. Um, I'm fine with it, obviously, because of... Where oh, yeah, give, give the guy a new contract. But, yeah, uh, but I'm concerned. I, I, I do think that... Like, when I hear, for example, I think it was Neville and Keane after the match talking about him, along with Mike Richards and Carragher after the derby, and it very, it just sounds so much like when they were trying to talk about Solskjaer as well, mm. that it's not time, that there's underlying reasons, that there's problems within the club. Yeah, I get that. But like, there are problems with, I don't know, pick, pretty much pick whatever club you want. Like Eddie Howe had problems within the Newcastle structure when he arrived. Yeah. He was able to set a team up to not be beaten with Dan Burns and with Jamal Lascelles and with... Um, you know, a Joe Linton who had barely been able to run in a straight line with the ball at his feet and all the rest of it. There, there's more that you can do by coaching well than is being done at Manchester United. A lot more. That's and- the key. That's the key. This comes down to coaching because if the players you have are not suited to how you want to play, can't you coach them to play that way? And even if the results aren't fantastic, if there was evidence that Ten Hag was moving United forward and moving them away from Oli Ball to this Ajax brand of football that he had promised to implement, I think United fans would look at it and say, okay, well, we're eighth, but the style of football is right. He's bringing in the right players and we're building something. And yes, it's going to be slow, but look at Arsenal. It took them a couple of years where Arteta came in for the first half season or whatever, he just stuck largely to similar stuff to what Emery was doing, wins the FA Cup. And then he he goes completely away from that and goes to his own brand of football. They had a couple of rough years. Obviously, they they finished second last season. But now you can see a, a team that has been built by a manager with a plan. This fella took over, tried his brand of football for a game and a half, they lost to Brighton, were getting pumped by Brentford, and he abandoned ship completely and went back to Oli Bull. And here we are now, 14 months later, he's still playing Oli Bull. And the tactical tweak he has made is he's implemented the David Moyes technique of playing a six foot four, largely defensive minded midfielder as his number 10 in Scott McTominay, where it was Fellaini for, for Moyes. Like, you look at the results. They were outplayed by Wolves, very fortunate to win that game. They got outplayed by Spurs. They got they went 2-0 down at home to, to Forrest, and Forrest buckled under the pressure and threw it away. They were a little bit unfortunate against Arsenal. The Rice goal shouldn't have counted, but they lost. They got dominated at home by Brighton. They beat Burnley 1-0 away. Round of applause. They deserve to win that game 1-0. They lost at home to Crystal Palace. They got really lucky against Brentford. 
where they were 1-0 down in stoppage time and somehow won the game. They beat Sheffield United away from home. Again, round of applause for all concerned. But they needed a worldie from Diogo Delo, who'll never score a goal as good again. And then they get pumped by City. Like, this is a disaster. And it spreads into the Champions League, like you mentioned. But they should have been battered by Bayern. Bayern should have beaten them five or six. Galatasaray beat them. And then they got outplayed by Copenhagen. It, this is a disaster on all fronts for them. They're eighth in the league. And the only reason they're eighth in the league and not ninth in the league is because West Ham didn't turn up against Everton at the weekend. They're dreadful. But like I said earlier, give the fella a new contract because this is exactly what we want to see. Lots of money being spent on players that just don't fit. They didn't need Mason Mount. Onan is a very different goalkeeper to De Gea, but nobody will convince me he's a better goalkeeper than De Gea. Not at this point. Even even with De Gea's decline, he's still a better goalkeeper. Onana might be a better passer of the ball, but De Gea is a better goalkeeper. Hoysland, I do think, is going to be really good. I will say that, but I think it could be two or three years. And the other fellow they sign is a backup goalkeeper. And then they bring in Regulon and Amrabat on loan, both of which seemed like panic moves on dead, deadline day. So, I, like, more and more of this, please. But, like... I'm I'm sick and tired of listening to the likes of Gary Neville defend him. Like you mentioned, the coaching has been appalling. There's been no effort to try and implement his brand of football. It feels like he got there and the job was just too big for him. And I read a report the other day that he interviewed at Spurs before he got the United job. So would that have been pre-Conte? I'd imagine it was pre-Conte. And the interview was awful. Like He, he interviewed dreadfully. And Le- Daniel Levy was like, no way, absolutely not. And it appears like his bad interviewing skills, because United didn't really bother to interview him, they just gave him the job. It appears like he, he can't manage players. It appears like he can't get his message across. Oh, it could be, yeah, when Nuno got the job. Um, it's just dreadful. Like, it's everything about his tenure there so far. I know they got fourth last year. I know they won the League Cup. But they didn't beat anybody of note, bar Newcastle with the third-choice goalkeeper in the final. They got the easiest runs possible in in all competitions. I just... And, like, we were crap last year. Chelsea were crap last year. Spurs were crap last year. Fourth was just sort of gifted to them. I I just... I, I don't see any positive that any even-minded United fan could take from any of this. I mean, I don't want to carry on about Man United because we've got other stuff to talk about as well, but when he says, like, we haven't got the squad that he wants to play the way he wants, I very much doubt Ange Postacoglu does either. He's been there a couple of months and they made a few transfers and lost Harry Kane. And there's over one point per game difference between the two teams. And we're only a quarter of the way through the season. And, and he I took over from, from Conte, Mourinho, Nuno. Like, he took over from really defensive-minded managers who'd built a defensive-minded squad. Spurs have scored double the number of league goals United have. Now, I know that obviously they have more coaching time because there's midweek gap for them and there's not for United because they're in European competition. But that, that, that shouldn't make a difference when you've had, what, four times the amount of time 
so far to, to to deal with the squad, to work with the squad, to shape them the way you want to. It's uh, there's a lot to not like about that. Anyway, I, I just wanted before we move on completely to to Liverpool matters. Um, we obviously spoke about the Ballon d'Or because you know there was segues there with with Salah linking it into Liverpool, and there's not with the women's Ballon d'Or. But I think we should very very quickly just discuss two things of it. Yes, one, Adanabul um, Mati, the the winner of the Ballon d'Or feminine. By all accounts, I'm, I'm obviously by no means a massive expert on women's football across the board, but internationally, watch plenty of them. Excellent and seems like no, nobody really has any major issue that she's won it. Second place kind of strikes me as similarities with Erling Haaland and Sam Kerr, obviously the importance that she has and goal scoring wise, but she's much more involved in Chelsea and Australia build up play than Haaland is with City, obviously. Um, the one thing I did want to discuss though was Mary Epps. Um, who finished fifth in the women's Ballon d'Or. She's the England goalkeeper for anyone who mm. doesn't, doesn't uh, watch or listen. Plays for Man United, England national team goalkeeper. I think comfortably by like many, many miles, the best goalkeeper I've seen in the women's game. Um, again, I've not watched everybody. I don't watch all the games or anything, but I think she's really good, really, really consistent, very dominant in her, in her area, really good spring, all the rest of it which just made me wonder, and I've had a little look into it, about the Yashin Trophy, because I started you know, reading that when Guy was giving us the, the nonsense about uh, Bruno finishing higher than Martinez in the Ballon d'Or ranking, but not getting higher than him in the actual Best Goalkeeper Award. As it turns out, Bruno actually finished third in that award. So I'm not, I'm not quite sure how he's gone from the Best Goalkeeper in voting to third goalkeeper among goalkeepers, but whatever, Edison finished second in that one. But the Yashin Trophy is not specified anywhere I can see that it's only the men's goalkeepers. So I was just wondering if you knew that it was or if you thought that there was a case for, for example, in this case, Mary Earps, the best goalkeeper in women's football, the fifth best women footballer in the world this year, being among the top five goalkeepers considering Ter Stegen, I don't think was that great last year. Courtois was good but I wouldn't say amazing Anana we've already mentioned was in the Ballon d'Or but wasn't in the Yashin award and Bruno very very good at the World Cup but with Sevilla dreadful for Sevilla in the league <laughs> Sevilla relegated for a while like hello I'm here to annoy you I'm here to annoy you into listening to more of me and more of others on EPL Index We don't just have the Anfield Index stuff. We've got EPL Index as well, which covers the entirety of the Premier League. And we have three podcasts and a whole bunch of really good writing on EPLindex.com. The podcasts are my own two-footed podcast, which is every day at 4 p.m., Monday through Friday, covering the whole league. We have a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. You know Tadiwa. He does Anfield Index. He presents a Tad Predictable before every Premier League match week. And then Kevin DeVries and his crew on the EPL roundtable there every week after the Premier League match week. So make sure you listen to everything we're doing on EPL Index and follow us there on Twitter at EPL Index. Thank you. Bye-bye. So I just thought I'd, I'd ask... What I, you- I do think there's a case for her to be a, a top five candidate for the for the Ashen Trophy for certain, and I think you could you can certainly, but yeah, I I think like like Emmy had a, a good club season and then a great World Cup. Yeah, I Ederson had a a great club season 
in terms of the trophies won, but like he also made some mistakes last season. Um, Buna was terrible for Sevilla for a long stretch of last season. They obviously went on and ended the season well, but it's it's a full season award. Courtois definitely took a step back last year. Ter Stegen, there's a there's an ongoing idea that Ter Stegen was incredible last year because Barca had such an amazing defensive record. And I think he was good, but not not what we saw from him maybe four years ago. I I do think there is a case. Now, I have some rather controversial takes on women's football, such as I think the pitch should be smaller because women are smaller. And I think their capacity to cover distance is smaller than the men. So I think if you if you made the pitch a little narrower and shorter, I think it would improve the game. I also think the goals themselves should be smaller because women goalkeepers are a lot smaller than the men's goalkeepers. Like, if we take Mary Earps as the prominent example, she's five foot eight. Can you imagine if Allison was five foot eight? Like, how would he do? He certainly wouldn't be as good. So I think the women's goals should be smaller as well because I think it would make it fairer on the goalkeepers who are not six foot four, six foot five, you know, Greek gods, they're five, seven, five, eight, five, nine. I think it would just make, I think it would improve the game greatly if we made the pitch smaller and the goal smaller. Now it would make it a bit harder to score, obviously, but not hugely, not as much as you would think because the goalkeeper remains the same size. It's not like you're putting a six foot five goalkeeper into a smaller goal. You're putting the same five foot eight goalkeeper into a smaller goal. Uh, Mary Earps, by all accounts, had a really good season with United last season um, and was obviously phenomenal at the World Cup and very, very unfortunate not to come away with a World Cup winner's medal. Um, so I do think, unless there is, uh, just, just as an aside, Mary Earps set a new. Uh, WSL record of 14 clean sheets last season for Manchester United. So obviously had had an outstanding personal year, um, finishing second, helping them qualify for the Champions League. I do think there's a case that either she should be in the nominations for the Ashen Trophy, or you've got to create a, a women's version. So. Oh a lot easier or make it a lot easier to find the rule that says it is only for men. Because yeah. I can't find it anywhere anyway. No, I can't either. I'm, I'm looking here as well. So maybe create a Hope Solo Award or, or whoever's the best, you know, seen as the best historic women's goalkeeper of all time. Um, because, you know, there needs to be equality on this. Like if there's an award for men doing a specific thing, so in this case, playing in goal, there should be the same thing on the women's side. And Mary Earps undeniably would have won it uh, going away this season. She was the only woman among the 30 women who received votes in the uh, Ballon d'Or. She was the only woman who's a goalkeeper. Uh, Very few defenders as well, it's worth noting. It's mainly midfielders and forwards because, you know, popularity contests and and so on and so forth. Um, 
Right, let's move on. Uh, we play Bournemouth tomorrow night in the last 16 of the EFL Cup. And it, Carl, it kind of feels like the way the competition is broken with a number of the top clubs already out, City, Brighton, Spurs. There's a real opportunity for silverware here for Liverpool. Yeah, I mean, it's quarterfinals after this round, right? So you look at the fixtures, Manchester United play Newcastle. So one of them's got to go. Obviously, you know, played each other in the final last year, but we've spoken about how poor United are and so on. So even if United go through, they're not a team I fear personally. Um, even finishing below them last year, they're, they're nowhere near a team that I would be scared about going up against in a cup competition. Newcastle would be more difficult, but we've spoken about the the mentality thing that we have against them at the moment, which I think absolutely proved to be the case when we played them. Um, Chelsea, a big name, but certainly not in their best place at the moment. Is a cup their priority? Is Is league their priority at the minute in terms of where they need to get themselves back into European competition and so on. You could definitely argue the case that a big cup game for them, they would play a strong side. But is that strong side as strong as ours at the minute? I I don't think so because Pochettino is obviously... Wouldn't that just be their league team, which is dreadful? (laughs) I mean, there's there's things to sort. And Chelsea's a whole other podcast because they're somewhere right in the middle of the Man United and Tottenham discussion, aren't they, Mm. to be fair? So we we can come on to them another time. But none of the rest of them are clubs we would look at and go, tricky draw. I think West Ham away is probably, other than Newcastle there. The well, Arsenal would be at. the one. Yeah, yeah. If, West yeah. Ham play Arsenal, so West one of them Ham. is going out as well. Yes. So that, that's that's exactly what I was just going to say. Like West Ham away, if you played them, you'd look at it and think that that's a tricky one. Or Arsenal, if they happen to go through from that one, home or away is obviously going to be a difficult game. I would say it's just the winner of that tie that I would be concerned if we drew. Yeah, so that was that would be all. That's the thing. And if you look at the like, if you look at the draw, you get Mansfield versus Port Vale, so there'll be one lower t- lower league team through. You get Exeter versus Middlesbrough, two lower league teams through. West Ham or Arsenal. That eliminates one of the top Premier League teams one way or the other. Everton versus Burnley. Same they're glorified wins. lower league teams. Like Burnley are still a championship team for all intents and purposes and Everton are garbage. Uh, Chelsea versus Blackburn. I mean, don't put a past Blackburn to go there and beat them. Everybody else does it. <laughs> Everybody else goes there and wins other than us. Uh, Ipswich against Fulham. Would you be wildly surprised if Ipswich knocked out Fulham? All things considered, I wouldn't be, especially not at Portman Road. So that could be another Premier League team out. And even if Fulham go through, they're not someone you'd be hugely concerned about. And then, like you said, United against Newcastle. So that's that's another big contender gone. And if United could get by Newcastle, I think that's actually the draw I would want because I really want to make sure we get to play Ten Hag again. Um because, you know, if he gets sacked before we play them in the league, I'll be devastated. Ah. Oh, yeah, you're right. Other than the winner of West Ham Arsenal, like, there's no there's no one else you'd kind of be like, oh, I'd, I'd like to kind of avoid that, maybe until the semis. 
because then you get them two legs and, you know, Anfield on a, a cup semi-final night will be bouncing and maybe we can, we can you know, get a strong result there and then go away in the second leg or whatever and, and, and you know, we'll see ourselves through. I, I'm very much all in on us winning this competition this year because this is Liverpool 2.0, as everybody, including Jürgen, has said. By eight years into his tenure, it, it probably should be like Liverpool 4.0 or at least 3.0, but he was rather stubborn about keeping some players for too long. But we've gotten here eventually. We're not perfect yet, but I don't see a team in that co- in that competition that beats us, if I'm honest. Like, I know Arsenal are ahead of us in the league at the moment by, what, one point? Uh, they in no way concern me all that much. I... We last season we were dreadful, absolutely dreadful, and we should have beaten them in both games. They needed three massive helps from the referee at the Emirates, the sack of goal, the blatant handball by Gabriel, and then the the penalty that Jesus got. And at Anfield, we tore them apart once we changed the shape. Absolutely tore them apart, and they shrank at Anfield and they always shrink at Anfield I don't think they have the mental toughness to come to Anfield if the crowd is really into it and get a result so if we go full strength like I think we can we can play a semi-strong team against Bournemouth and get through and then depending on who we get in the next round we might again be able to go with a semi-strong team let me ask you then Dave because I'll put the dates to you yeah it's quarterfinal is is week commencing the 18th of December. So that would give us Union on the 14th on a Thursday, obviously, which then means we play Sunday, which we already know is Manchester United on the 17th. Yeah. Then the following weekend, we're at home to Arsenal. So the League Cup quarterfinal falls between those two home matches, home to United, home to Arsenal. Do you want to play Man United again midweek? I, I, yeah, happily. Happily, so we, they're we, awful. We should be through, obviously, comfortably in top. So the union game. So the union game, I think we can throw rotation. out. Yeah, yeah. I th- I'd be playing the kids in that game. So then like, you're looking at full strength v United, more or less, but maybe with a couple of changes midweek against United, and full strength again against Arsenal. Mm. But then it's three days later against Burnley on Boxing Day. And Burnley are awful. So you don't probably don't need to go full strength against yeah, them. You'd want a few rotations, yeah. But you're still looking at probably some players playing all four matches, aren't you, in the space of 11 days? Yeah. yeah. But that happens most Christmases anyway. Like yeah. with the new gap in January, there is that little bit of respite. And obviously there's an FA Cup game right at the start of January, which draw dependent, we might be able to rest a whole bunch of players for as well. I feel like this is a competition that we we're in a situation now where we can win it. And I think we should go and win it because I think it's important to get silverware this season because it's Liverpool 2.0. It would be the first trophy for this iteration of this Liverpool team. And I also think if you look back historically at this competition, winning this competition, because it's that bit earlier in the season, winning this competition can really give you that springboard yeah. 
for the second half of the year. When's the final? Is it February again? Yeah, the semis are 8th and the 21st or, or those weeks of January and then Sunday 25th of February for the final. Yeah. So you, you end February with silverware with three months left in the year. We'll still be chasing a top four finish and all going well, a uh, Europa League title. FA Cup, maybe we're still in that as well. But I do think it can give you that launching pad. And I think winning silverware this season is key for a couple of things. One, actually the biggest one is Mo. Because I think the best way we can convince Mo to stay and turn down money that we can't match. Like, we can't match what he's going to get offered by Saudi. The only clubs that could are City and PSG and would include enormous amounts of money under the table. But if we can say to Mo, you can fill your boots with medals here over the next three to four years, and the Saudi money will still be there in four years' time. They're still going to want you because you're still Mo Salah. You're the greatest Arab footballer ever. I think there is a very, very strong case that he's the greatest African player ever. He's the greatest Muslim player ever. I, I think this that money will still be there. I mean, they, they signed Cristiano at 37 to 100 million a year. I don't know why Mo, who'll have more commercial appeal and more general appeal in that region of the world wouldn't get the money that they're offering him now in four years' time. And I think if we can say to Mo, we just won a trophy, two trophies, touch wood, three trophies, and we're not even the finished article yet. We've still got two or three more pieces to add this summer. I think that sells him on committing his future to the club and sticking around because he want. I think he wants to get as high in the goal records as he can, and I mean he's not going to pass anyone else. I wouldn't imagine uh, this season, but if he were to stay a few more years, a lot more of these players become real real targets for him to go and pass. You know, right now, I think he sits fifth all time. Uh, Billy Little is, what, 26 goals ahead? No, 29 goals ahead of him. That's one he could pass with this season and next season. He could also pass Gordon Hodgson next season, which would put him third all time. And if he had a couple more years after that, there's no question he can pass Roger Hunt. I think you could you can sell him on these type of things, but silverware has to be part of it. That the guy wants to win. He wants to win trophies. He wants that legacy of success. And th- this plays into it. I know it's only a league cup, but it's also a you know, it's a good signpost of future success. It it, it traditionally has been. Now obviously there's some out- outliers in that, but traditionally it has been a signpost of of oncoming success for a, a top club. I don't need a VPN. I've got nothing to hide. <laughs> this is what I used to tell myself before I hooked up with LibertyShield.com. Not only is my home internet now fully encrypted, but I can now access all the websites I want, whenever I want, and do so from absolutely anywhere. 
As a Liverpool fan, I love to know I can now watch every match, regardless of whether it's on UK TV or not. My Liberty Shield VPN makes sure nothing is blocked and guarantees me super fast streaming speed throughout that match. You can get connected right now with their software package, which includes a 48-hour no-obligation free trial and instant access to their apps for Apple, Android, Fire TV, PC, Mac and Android TV. Or go a step further like I have and get one of their pre-configured VPN routers. These small but powerful devices allow you to easily connect every device in your home to VPN, making it the perfect solution for smart TVs, mag boxes and games consoles. Visit libertyshield.com today and use coupon code AIVPN25 to get 25% off at checkout. Yeah, look, I... You know, I've been fully on board with all the cups in all the years, so I'm certainly not backing away from that now. I just think, you know, we look back to the start of the season and I said, you know, going for the cups is, is I think, really important. I think it's not just a, a route to trophies, but it's a route to prove to the players. Sometimes they need that little click of, oh, this is this is the right way. This is working for us. This is going to lead us to big things. And Carabao Cup can be that. No, it's not the biggest trophy, but it's an important milestone to pass sometimes um mm. you know you only got to look at the fa cup and let's say newcastle years ago when they failed to win it twice uh all the near misses the teams have had and then they don't quite go on arsenal even when they were you know the the young kids was there with with wenger and they were looking really really good but they didn't quite really go on and win anything it makes a difference you don't you don't go on and necessarily take that next step afterwards but without getting one of the cups first it's very unlikely you're ever going to win the league you know leicester Exactly, well, they did it, but that, how often does that happen? How likely is that to be happening again? Um, and do you know what? Apart from anything else, the League Cup is ours, isn't it? You know, the League yeah. Cup. We, we've always had this this record and the most wins, and then City obviously have been able to dominate it because of the strength of squad. And I think this year our squad is in a really good place at the minute. We haven't had a horrendous run of injuries. If they do come later on in the season, so be. You have to deal with it. But the League Cup's already done by then, so. I, I do think that it's a really, really good opportunity to add a trophy. You can't look obviously too far ahead and you've got to play the team that's in front of you and we're still three rounds from from being able to go for the trophy. But we have a, a, a very, very good squad. I think we've easily got a good enough team to put a competitive one out, but still rest one or two or leave them on the bench at least because you know, Bournemouth are not a terrible team by any stretch of the imagination. No. But if they do, If they do rotate as well, you'd like to think that, yeah, we're going to be too strong for them by a bit of a distance. So Mo is 32 goals behind Billy Little as we speak. Mo averages 31 goals a season for Liverpool over the last six years. And he is currently on track for 40 this year. Let's just say he he ends up at about 35 this year. So he'd be seven behind Little going into next season. And he'd be 20 behind Hodgson. Like, third is absolutely going to happen if he stays for next season. Um, and I, I, I just, I, I never want the fella to leave. I, I, I kind of talked myself into it in the summer because I just thought from a business point of view, it probably made sense. And there was a lot of talk he kind of wanted to go and, take the opportunity. But I think part of that was he was looking at the Liverpool team and thinking, well, how, how, how long is it going to be before we win stuff? 
And now if we can show them, well, we're ready to win stuff. You've just won stuff. We're going to go and win more. Another league title, another Champions League. Stick with us, Mo, and win these trophies. And, and you know, there'll be fucking, there'll be statues, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I, I think it, it can be important. Uh, so on to Bournemouth. Obviously, they won their first Premier League game of the season at the weekend. They beat Burnley 2-1. Uh, unfortunately for them, Everton also won, so they didn't really close any kind of gap on the teams from 16 and down, 16 and above. But they did move themselves out of the, the bottom three. Uh, probably gives Iraola a little bit of breathing room. But they've got tough league games coming up. They're away to City, home to Newcastle in in the next two league games before the international break. So if I had to guess, I would guess they will look to rotate in this upcoming League Cup game. Now, they do have some injuries, obviously, the most notable of which is Tyler Adams, who unfortunately has had another major surgery on his hamstring. They've also got uh, Ryan Fredericks, Emmy Marcondes, um, Neto, Lewis Cook, uh, Lewis Cook suspended. Neto and Emmy Marcondes and Fredericks are injured. Now, I don't think Fredericks or Marcondes will be starting anyway, so that's fine. They might actually be better off with Radu and Gold and Neto because Neto's, Neto's had a very poor start to the season. Um, they should have Sinisi fit and well. So they'll they'll have a strong squad available, but this is the kind of game, I think, where they will look to to rotate and put out like Adam Smith could play right back as an example. I think Kirkes will be the left back. And I would imagine we might see, let's say, Mefim and Kelly in the middle or Mefim and Sinisi in the middle and Zerbani sits out. Uh, in midfield, I'd imagine Joe Rothwell starts potentially in the centre midfield with Ryan Christie or Philip Billing. I think Alex Scott will sit out. And then in the, the three behind the striker, I think Hamid Traore comes in. I would guess Sinistera will start and potentially then David Brooks is the third one. So you're leaving out, uh, say, Christy or Billing. You're leaving out Tavernier. And maybe Oatara starts, actually, now that I think of it. He probably will start because he hasn't been starting in the league. Up front, it wouldn't surprise me at all if Kiefer Moore started and Dominic Solanke got a break. So, like, that's not a bad team, but it's not their best team. It's missing three or four of their guaranteed starters. It's a team we should be able to beat even with a, a rotated team because our rotated team is still very strong. If we go Kelleher... Right back is a question mark, but I I would suggest maybe Gomez starts, Chambers starts left back, maybe Virgil plays next to Matip. In midfield, I think Curtis obviously will... Well, Curtis, yeah, Curtis is back, so Curtis will start. I think Endo will start. And then maybe the other one is Harvey. And then in the front three, I think Gakpo starts. It wouldn't surprise me if Darwin started. Mm. And then I'm not sure who the third would be, but I know that Mo is going to tell the manager he wants to play. 
<laughs> right. Well, I'll tell you what. Here's, here's a, a little quiz for you before we do our team then. Salah's been here six years. This is seventh season. How many league games has he played? League games? Uh, league Cup games, sorry. Oh, I know the answer to this because I looked at it about five <laughs> okay. minutes ago. It's it's four. Four games in what will now be seven seasons. That's that's pretty special, to be fair. The, f- uh, the final was the only game he played in the 21-22 season. Did you happen to see the goals? One. <laughs> One goal. So I was going to then ask you, do you know our top four scorers in the League Cup in history? Three of them, I imagine, you can get very quickly. But if you didn't see them, then the fourth would be tricky. So Rush will be one. Yep. Fowler? Yeah. Owen? No. Owen didn't actually get double figures. Nine League Cup calls. Gerard? No. Older. A long run. Older. Much older. Much older. Yeah. Uh, Kenny? Yeah, Kenny's third. So 48 League Cup goals for Rush, 29 for Fowler. 27 for Dalgleish. And then the next one has 14. 14. Give me, give me, give me a decade. Uh, One of Dalgleish's teams. Beardsley? No, much more withdrawn in the team. Ronnie Whelan? Yes, Ronnie Whelan. Pretty good. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, Ronnie Whelan loved himself a League Cup goal. I think it was Portsmouth. Do I remember a, a, a goal from him against Struggling, But yeah, I think, I think that might have been an FA Cup game. Was it FA Cup? A, a Barnes free kick to hit the crossbar, and Ronnie Whelan tapped it home from Possibly. short distance, and Darren Anderton scored for them. I think it went to a replay. Um, yeah. Anyway, anyway, we've got, little, we've little... got an incredible history in this competition. Like this little... is our competition that we have historically always done very, very well. And if we want to stick with the tradition of this club, then doing well in this competition matters. We won it in 81, 82, 83, and 84. We won it in 95, the McManaman final. We won it in 01 as part of a treble. We won it in 03, Julier second. Rafa never won it, and it always bothered me that he never won it. Kenny won it uh, in 2012, and then obviously a 10-year gap, and Jürgen won it. And what we've done is we've kind of, like, we've only won it twice in the last 20 years, and that's allowed City to really catch up. They won six in the last 10 years. Uh, We've been to four finals uh, and lost 78. I think we lost to Forest. Am I right with that? We lost to Forest in 78. Yeah, we lost to Forest. And 1987, we lost to Arsenal. 2005, we lost to Mourinho's Chelsea, who went on to win the league. And 2015-16, we lost to Manchester City. Uh, I believe Pellegrini was manager that year. Am I right? I think Pellegrini was manager that year. But yeah, so we've we've been to 13 finals overall. Um, we're the most successful club. We've been in the most finals. We've taken it the most seriously over a long period of time. And you know, you think back to that spell in you know 80 to 84, we dominated 
domestically and we dominated in Europe. We showed it was capable to compete on all the fronts. Um, I, I'd like to see us have a go at winning it this year. I really would. I, like, would I, I think it was huge for us in 21-22. Yeah. Yeah, no question about that. And look, it, it's it's one thing to say that we've improved quite quickly and certainly compared to last season, but a run to, you know, even the semifinals does, I think, show quite a lot of intent as well as um, almost tangible uh, proof of that improvement. Um, and just, just on that, because we play Wednesday night and our next game is looting away on a Sunday, it's a pretty big gap and not the biggest, obviously, of, of opponents at the weekend, whereas Bournemouth play Man City. So I do think that they will rotate a few so that they can obviously not have the same players being run around twice in, in the space of a few days. But would you therefore put an extra starter or two in for Liverpool's team? Because Yeah, I think I, think, I, I, think think I would. Be, yeah, I think I would be inclined to maybe maybe have Salah on the bench, but let's say push Elliot forward and start Alexis as, a, as an eight, for example, yeah. if Endo is going to start. Um, I'm not sure about Van Dijk, maybe he doesn't, but you know, even well, he'll squad. definitely have to play against Luton because all they do is hump long balls. So you need exactly. Virgil. Yeah, but like so you, people... I think you could start Salah in this one and maybe have him come off the bench at the weekend against Luton. Do you know the same thing with Darwin? I'm not saying you start both of them. I'm saying you start one or the other of him and Darwin, and then have them off the bench at the weekend against Luton because, like, like let's be honest, we should be able to beat Luton with a heavily rotated team as well. Um, but I, I think I think he'll definitely push one or two starters in that you wouldn't necessarily have expected for the last sixteen contest in the League Cup. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, what about a prediction then, Mister Matches? How do you see um, this all going? I mean, it's the cup, but I do think that there's just too much good play and too much confidence in Liverpool at the minute to not win this. So as long as they don't take their eye off the ball and just don't care about it, because I think that they, they should at the minute. But mm. cup teams have generally been diligent, if not always, you know, really, really good in performance levels uh, so far this season. So I'm going to go 3-1 to us. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, I'll go 2-0. I'll go 2-0. Uh, we will have a post-match roll after this cup game. It is hosted by Guy Drinkle. And I think it's myself and Jim Boardman. Is that right, Guy? Yep, pretty sure it is. Yeah, so that'll be the, the panel for for that one. Downey obviously doesn't lower himself to domestic cups, you know, until the finals come around. And even then, he's he's a little bit haphazard about them. I think you did the finals in 21-22, Guy, didn't you? Or did Trev step I in? I did, and I think, Tre- I think Trev was a guest on them rather than... There the we go. That's what we might do for this year for the final. We might get, we might make Downey be a guest and get, get him to say something controversial. Hopefully, he'll have had a few drinks and he'll just, you know... Lose all sense of of decorum and start calling people out. Um, right, Carl, is there anything else you want to touch on today before we go? No, I think that was a lovely wide-ranging part. There we go. Right, an hour and 15. Not bad at all. Thank you, as always, for listening. We will be back later this week to preview Liverpool versus Luton in the Premier League and talk fondly about Kenilworth Road, plastic pitches and long ball football. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement. 
and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.